Welcome to the All In Gospel Bible Study. Each week, we move chapter by chapter through the Bible towards a comprehensive understanding of what the Bible teaches. All In Gospel is recorded live in White Bear Lake, Minnesota, featuring Dr. Sean Dickers. You can support this broadcast by subscribing or donating at anchor.fm slash allingospel or visit the allingospel.com website. Good morning. We're going to be in Genesis 1 this morning. Uh, you know, a lot of folks start, if you're, going to, if you're going to study the Bible, you're going to go through the entire Bible, a lot of people start in Genesis, and, and that's a good place to start. If you want to get serious about your walk with the Lord, studying the Word of God is one of the first things you do. When, when Israel had a new king, Deuteronomy 17.9, one of the first things they did is they read through all of the Word of God or at least the Torah, there was less of the Word of God because we have the New Testament, we have the prophets. You know, when Joshua first came into the Holy Land, Joshua 8.34, first thing he did is he sat down and read the entire law, the first five books of the, of the Old Testament, to all the people out loud. They sat down and read through it. So if you want, in a day or so, you could binge read all of the Torah and, and you could get on your way with that. And you know, we see again and again and again when they rebuild the temple in Nehemiah 8, uh, when Jesus criticizes the Pharisees, one of the questions he asked them is, haven't you read the law? In Matthew 12, 5. This is one of the things that marks a believer is that they've actually read the book they say they're going to follow. So that's what we're going to do here. We're going to start at Genesis 1. We're going to study the entire Bible. We're going to go through it chapter by chapter, verse by verse, word by word. And in doing that, trust that God's promises are true, that if we do it, that's noble character, like the Bereans in Acts 17. The Berean Jews were more noble of character, for they received the message with eagerness and examined the scriptures every day to see if what Paul said was true. So they don't even take Paul's word for granted, and you shouldn't take my word for granted. You should study the Bible yourself and see if what we say is true. Because if we're going to go through the entire Bible, I'm going to make mistakes. I'm going to get things wrong. But the point is, you're studying it. You read it. You look up the words. And we'll get you started with that kind of dialogue and discussion. So for us in the room, after we're done with the chapter, we're going to talk about it. We're going to pick it apart and we're going to discuss it. Um, but we're going to get started with what's existing teaching on that chapter. So we know what people have taught, uh, what Christian thinking is around it. We're going to do, I'm going to talk a little bit about applying it to our lives in order to get that conversation going. So my experience is that um, we're never prepared or ready to read the Bible. We just need to do it because God's going to do something in us when we read his words. His words are an extension of who he is. So when we read his word, we're putting it through our, our mind and it's helping our little dendrites come together and lined up with God's word is to be aligned with God's word. And we learn that by reading it. So here's what we're going to do. We're going to teach every single word of the Bible. We're not going to skip the hard topics. We're not going to skip the tough stuff. We're not going to skip the passages that people critique. We're going to go through every single word of it. Uh, and we're going to examine it. And I hope we do it eagerly like the Bereans. Um, and, and, and we have just this time of doing it. And we're going to record it and put it out as a podcast so that people can binge listen to the Bible and go through the whole thing. In that sense, we're committing to it. 
and we're trusting God's promises that his word does not return, return void. Um, that when we study the word, he's going to do things in our life. And it's an act of war, spiritual war. If we want to learn what God says, that means that uh, biblically speaking, there's going to be uh, forces that are opposed to God that will oppose us, namely the world, the end, Satan, spiritual forces. Uh, so we're going to get into that battle and go all into that battle um, by studying the gospel and studying the word of God uh, that it's based on. So here we are in Genesis 1. I'm going to just do the first five sentences because, frankly, the entire gospel message is wrapped up here. The theology here is solid. Uh, it is the roots of Judaism and Christianity all in five sentences. Here it is. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. The earth was without form and void. The darkness was on the face of the deep and the spirit of God was hovering over the face of the waters. Then God said, let there be light. And there was light. And God saw the light that it was good. And God divided the light from the darkness. God called the light day and the darkness he called night. So the evening and the morning were the first day. So Genesis is attributed to Moses. He's the guy that gathered the scrolls. There's 11 family documents, only 11 family documents. And it covers about 2000 years of human history. It starts with these five sentences. So as Moses puts these together, the way we can shape Genesis as a book is that the first five chapters are preserved through the flood. Uh, so they would be something that had to get into Noah's boat with him. Uh, Lamech would have been uh, Noah's dad. He would have been about 56 years old when Adam died. So even if Adam got this first five sentences directly from God, like God told Adam, this is what happened. Uh, it really would have been handed off once between Adam and the flood. Then you get Noah's genealogy from chapter six to nine. You get the dispersion of people all over the earth uh, and Noah getting that scroll from his dad would have been about, a, he would have been alive on the earth for about a hundred years at the same time as Terah, Abraham's dad. So how do you get from Adam to Lamech and Noah to Terah? You have about 20 generations that overlap there because people, according to the Bible, are living a hundred plus, 200 plus years, even more, right? Methuselah. So we really only have these scrolls being from God to Adam to Noah to Terah being a 20 generations, but only getting handed off a few times. So the chain of custody, so to speak, is pretty thin here, according to what the Bible says. Chapters uh, 10 and 11 are the diaspora of humanity all the way to Abraham. So about, you know, that 2000 years of human history there. And then chapters 12 to 50 is about 200 more years of Jewish history, focusing on Abraham's son, Isaac, Jacob, all the way through to, to Joseph being in Egypt. And at the end of Genesis, uh, we're going to leave Joseph, Joseph and the Hebrews in Egypt. And that's going to be the kind of the scope of the book or the outline of the book. If Moses was giving these collection of scrolls from all these different families, uh, he would have had time to organize them. He would have been in the wilderness for 40 years uh, and he would have been uh, 40 years as a shepherd <laughs> living, uh, living with uh, outside of Egypt. Uh, and, and he would have been able to gather these scrolls together and put them together in a book that he calls Genesis or the way the Jewish, uh, the ancient Jews labeled these, this scroll was beginnings or Vershish the word Genesis. Uh, so they take this beginnings or collection of beginnings of all of humanity, of sin, God's redemptive plan, where Israel came from, where the universe came from. Uh, and we 
take this with a set of theological assumptions, or I would call them not assumptions, but premises. And in any book, at the beginning of the book, they're going to outline their terms. They're going to outline the assumptions or premises on which they're going to lay out their arguments. There has to be a point of starting, a place where you can begin to tell the story once upon a time. And Genesis is that beginning of God's story that's going to go through all of human history. Uh, Genesis, therefore, is a very unique and essential text for the Bible. Uh, it establishes the context for God's plan and redemption. We know why we need Jesus because of the book of Genesis, because of the fall of humankind. Uh, we know the plan of God to bring Jesus to earth uh, as a progressive revelation of how the light of humankind will be revealed to the universe. Uh, so it establishes God's context for his plan, his redemption, the way he's going to reveal his Messiah to the world and why we need a Messiah. All of that in these first few verses gets us going, gets us off to the, to the, to the races with that. Um, the other piece with this, and I, and I say this to people that say the Old Testament isn't important. I think that's, that's uh, an increasingly popular sentiment amongst Christians that I think are compromised. That when you say the Old Testament is important anymore, then you're losing the roots or beginnings of Jesus and why Jesus is important. Outside of the Old Testament context, Jesus is, uh, is, is unknown to us. There's no revelation going on and there's no expectation that looks for Jesus prior to his birth. So it's the first thing God wants us to know about himself, his people, and his love for Israel. And it starts with Genesis 1-1 saying, in the beginning, in the beginning, God, in the beginning, God created. There's a, a each singular word in the beginning uh, makes a, a wonderful premise for this entire thing. First, in the beginning, God. The, the premise of the Bible is that there is a God. So when we talk to people that say, I don't believe there's a God, the Bible's not going to be a place to argue with them from, right? You can read Romans 1 and Paul's kind of, answer to that. Um, but you have to at least start with the assumption that there is a God. In the beginning, at the, at the forefront of things, there is a God. So the word in the beginning, reshith, means the principal thing, the first in order of things. It is the most important idea. There is a God. There is a beginning or a start of things is a way to interpret that. If there is a principal thing, that means that there can be other things that have relevance in relation to the principal thing. Our lives, for instance, are relevant in the, in, the, in the premise that there is a God. If there is a God and he loves us and we have sinned against him and he has created a revelatory path of redemption through Jesus Christ, then our life is one of deciding between the light and the darkness. We make a choice. And that's the primary thing. It's the beginning thing. It's the most important thing. In fact, Genesis 1 sets up that entire narrative. And you could argue sets it up in the first four English words. In the beginning, God. Psalm 19, 1 through 4 says this. The heavens declare the glory of God. The firmament, the heavens and the earth, the firmament shows his handiwork. Day unto day utters speech and night unto night reveals knowledge. There is no speech or language where their voice is not heard. Their lines gone out through all the earth and their words to the end of the world. The idea that God creates the heavens and the earth sets up a context where everyone on earth 
and every spiritual being in the heavens know that there's a God and that God is relevant because he's the creator of all. He, he is the mighty God. Romans 1.20 says, since the creation of the world, since these verses, his invisible attributes are clearly seen, being understood by the things that are made, his eternal power and Godhead, so they are without excuse. From the beginning, God is revealed. He is known. That premise for the Bible sets up every instance where God interacts with humankind, where God reveals himself to humankind, where God comes as a child in a manger to save humankind. That God is here to be seen. He's here to be known and related to. Really, in fact, he's self-relational in his being. If we look carefully at the word God there, it's not Jehovah. It's not, it's not the revealed name that we get later in the Bible. Here we just see Elohim. Elohim is not the Hebrew word for God. It is the Hebrew word for gods, plural. In fact, we'll expand that. Grammatically speaking, Elohim is the plural noun, and it's getting used in this sentence like a singular word. Well, that's tricky if you don't believe in a Trinitarian God or a three-in-one God. So in the first four words, we have the concept of the Trinity. And, and I'll say Trinity and not duality, and, and here's why. The Hebrew singular word for God is El or Eloha, right? But God, God doesn't use that word when he conveys what happens at the beginning. The Hebrew word for two is El La. So a dual God or a two-part God might be Elah instead of Elohim. Elohim is three or more. In the beginning, three or more God, he created the heavens and the earth. The trinities buried in the, like the first few words of the Bible. We get that there is a beginning. If there's a beginning, there's a middle and an end. We get that there is a God that exists that is self in self-community or a, trini a triune God, a unified three God is right there in the word Elohim. And we get that he creates things, he makes things. So in the first sentence, we get all of that. In fact, Elohim, not a personal name, just the name of the deity, is used 2,600 times going forward. Contrast that uh, with the word single God, right? Allah, uh, or, or, or Elah, dual God. Uh, Allah, in the Arabic, is, is still means single God, and that is the word for, for all of, of Islam is Allah. That's not the God of the Bible. The God of the Bible is Elohim, very different and a different concept. If you want to change the concept, you might as well start your own religion like Muhammad did. But if you want to be in the Judeo-Christian tradition, you believe in Elohim, a three-in-one God. It's always accurate in the Bible. When you, when you do this level of, of searching in the Bible, we're going to see this as we go through it chapter by chapter and sentence by sentence. We're going to see that God's word is perfect. It's actually in, in each use of each word, it's correct. Here's another one. In the beginning, God created. The word created there is bara in the Hebrew. In the beginning, God creates at shamian, at eres, the heavens and the earth. Bara is to cut something down from a larger mass. It is a creator or an active verb. So we get a sense that God, in the beginning, three in one, God creator. That God is the beginning of all things, the foremost of all things. So we make out this God that is that of Elohim, and he's a much, much larger being than simple reality or our conceived reality. He's bigger than our spectrum. 
and in, in being bigger than our spectrum, the universe as we know it is cut down from God's reality. It's something smaller than God's existence. This is interesting. Scientists, over a thousand scientists uh, are in line right now to use the Hadron Collider, the Higgs-Boston particle subatomic uh, 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 atomic collider that they use. And what they're discovering with this is that as small as they get and as they try to split atoms and discover things that are smaller than atoms, they're finding that there's elements they simply can't lay eyes on. So they believe in what's called, these are scientists, they believe in the God particle, the particle they haven't quite seen yet, and they've never proved it, but based on what they can see, they know there must be something there. Same thing's true in our lives. We may never see God with our physical senses, but we can see all around us everything God's done, and we know that God's there because we depend on God's creation for anything. Like even our ability to think relies on something. We don't, we're not just self-created beings. We don't speak and things exist. It doesn't work like that for us. There is something beyond us. We know there's something beyond us. Or at least the Holy Spirit teaches us that there's something beyond us. And we know that there has to be more to this life than our own limited spectrum. And science even shows that. We know that when we use a prism to split light, there's actually tones of light on both sides of the spectrum we can't see with the naked eye. But we know we're there and we've created tools to recognize that they're there. So there's this expanding universe. In the beginning, God created. He cut, a, he cut some things down from what was already part of what God's existence is. And those things he cut down were the heavens and the earth. Eth, heavens, eth, earth. Eth is a pointer of a definite direct object. It's an indicator. In fact, the, the et before heaven and the et before earth, where we just put the word the, it's actually a word for accusing somebody of something. He's the one who did it. She's the one who stole the cookies. They use the Hebrew word et, et cookies. Hers, the, she did the cookies. So in this case, it's blaming God for the heavens and the earth. In the beginning, God creator, God created heavens. He's the one who did it. And earth, he's the one who did that too. It's a definite direct object indicator or something that ascribes the action to something else. So the, the subject noun in the sentence, God, God created, is then blame that takes those terms and it blames them on God. God's responsible for the heavens. He's responsible for the earth. So we don't necessarily have an English word for et, but in the Hebrew that has something to do with the existence or the existential state of a being. Here's the best I can think of for that. There's a story of the scorpion and the frog, and the scorpion bites the frog. I'm just giving away the punchline. I won't tell the whole story. And the frog just looks at him and says, why did you bite me? And the scorpion just says, it's who I am. And the word at is, you know, why? who did this? Right? That question of God did the heavens. God did the earth. The first claim in the Bible is God made everything. He's the creator. So God created, he did it, it's who he is, it's part of who is being, the heavens. And he did it, it's who he is, it's part of his being, the earth. God made it all. So that idea of cre creation is an expression of God's fruit. And you know a being based on its fruit, according to Jesus. You know a tree based on the kind of fruit it makes. Well, the kind of fruit the God of the universe makes is the universe. 
that's what he makes. Bara, he cuts that out for us. It's not incidental either that the order of these things puts the heavens first. We view, a lot of times as humans, we view everything from the earth first. That's the wrong order. The spiritual existence is what God asks us to look for, not the earthly existence. So it's very specific. The earth is going to take precedent for most humans throughout all of history. But God starts with his truth and then takes on that human perspective and asks us to take on his perspective, the heavenly perspective. So God created the heavens and the earth. God created the heavens and he created the earth both. And we are, as humans, seeing that God meets us where we're at and asks us to see beyond the physical existence that we're in, to look for a spiritual existence or relationship with a heavenly father on earth. Reshith Elohim bara et shamiyam et eretz. Wow. In the Hebrew, this is pretty much what you need to believe. <laughs> if you can accept Genesis 1-1, the rest of the Bible becomes perfectly plausible. Everything else. If it's the perfect beginning, every single word with premise and reason, perfectly ordered, clear, and it posits a claim that's the core of wisdom. In the beginning, God, everything starts with God in our lives. And we're asked to be committing our whole life to God, which means we give our entire life and we sacrifice it to God so he can make a new creation in us and build a new life. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. He does it all. That's the miracle. That first sentence is the miracle of the Bible. If God created, then ex existence isn't some chance probability of statistics or if you only mix up things 20 zillion times, you might get something that means something. It doesn't work like that. Existence is not chance. It's causal. God created existence. It's an intentional creation. We know that from the first sentence. If God did this, then he has a purpose for doing it. And from our little weenie perspective, we have to try to understand what that is. What's God doing? Why is he making the universe? What's his end game? What's his plan? It invites the reader to listen. We get context. Notice that verse two starts with the word and. In the Hebrew, there's no separation from the first verse and the second verse. It's one sentence. So in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth and the earth was without form and void and darkness was on the face of the deep. This is all in the beginning. This is the context of the story of history. It all begins. Verse two, and the earth was without form and void and darkness was on the face of the deep and the spirit of God was hovering over the face of the waters. Again, with the word and. In the beginning, God and the spirit of God. Now we have two dimensions to one being, God. God is and he creates and he has a spirit that hovers and watches over things. He is everywhere. He's all present. So being everywhere and in all places, God has a spirit. That said, the spirit of God makes a showing right here at the beginning of creation. And it's, in that sense, everything is in God's hands. And not only is it his hands, he's hovering over it too. Almost like he's got his hand underneath all of the universe and he's got his hand over all of the universe. You see that? Isaiah 40 verse 12. Who's measured the waters in the hollow of his hand, measured heaven with the span, and calculated the dust of the earth in a measure? The answer to that question is God. God does that. Uh, that's a big God. 
Genesis invites you to get to know a God that's a bigger than you, but holds you in his hand and hovers over you at the same time. It's beautiful. Let's just understand the claim of the Bible and meet the God it introduces before getting too far into people that critique this God. Because you can come up with a lot of critiques against the Bible if you don't believe the first few sentences of the Bible. And at that point, it's not worth dialoguing. The Holy Spirit needs to convince you. You need to look at the evidence of God's work in creation to first believe there's a God even capable of doing what the Bible claims. But sanctify the Lord God in your hearts and always be ready to give a defense to anyone who asks for a reason for the hope that's in you with meekness and fear, 1 Peter 3.15. If Christ is your God, is your Lord, you should be ready to explain him to people. And in Genesis, we start to see this all-powerful God that chooses to reveal himself to us in the form of Jesus Christ. It's beautiful. The word earth there refers to a root or a firmness or a solidness. Uh, in other words, the, the, the Bible presents this idea that there was form was without its formness. And God doesn't like that. God's plan isn't to have an orderless world or universe. In fact, at the very beginning of his plan, this is the problem. This is the drama. This is the plot line. There is form and there is void. And physical order is lacking its own form, its own shape. So God provides everything of it because he chooses to sustain everything. The greatest curse of God is when he removes himself from something and what's left over is chaos and dissembling. When God hovers over things and puts his presence in it, what the natural outpouring of our God is to create shape and meaning from it. In Jeremiah, Jeremiah chapter 4, I'm going to read here, God speaks through his prophet and tells us about this lack of form being a problem. In fact, the lack of form actually needs a light. So listen to this. I beheld the earth and lo, it was without form and void and the heavens, they had no light. That's the problem in Jeremiah. The hills tremble. There was no man. All the birds were gone. I beheld and the fruitful place was a wilderness and the cities thereof were broken down at the presence of the Lord by his fierce anger. For the Lord has said, the whole land is going to be desolate, yet I will not make a full end of it. For there, this, this shall the earth mourn and the heavens above be black because I've spoken it, I've purposed it, and I will not repent from it and neither will I turn back. God has a plan and he doesn't like void and he doesn't like chaos and disorder and he creates shape. This is the God we get to know. God not only creates things, he sets them right and he gives them shape and form. So when we model that, we know that God's a God of order. That's beautiful. So this warrants God's action, this formlessness that the Spirit of God uh, hovers over the earth and sees that it has no order to it. And that's an invitation because God's going to change that. So this reveals God's uh, plan, his purpose, what he's doing. Uh, darkness re relates to the state of the universe outside of God, uh, the thing that God has not affected yet. It is not a thing that is created. Darkness is simply the absence of God. That's a thought, isn't it? Light is God's presence and darkness is God's not presence. And they're not good. And God's going to start naming them. The Spirit of God is Ruach. 
or wind. It's to breathe. Now, we should note this. When it says in the beginning God created or God creator, and then here it says spirit of God, it's not talking about two different creatures. It's talking about one creature with two different angles, right? So when I breathe, that isn't me being a separate thing than when I create. They're two different verbs for the same entity. And in here we see that the breath of God is existing as its own presence. Because when God speaks, it is reality. I know this is heady stuff, right? To hover over something is endearing. The word there implies, or it's used in the same way as a mom hovering over her child. It has the connotation or the intonation of a deep love that's completely intimate and special and precious. The Spirit of God hovers over all of existence. What will this hovering creator God do? What's next? And the answer to that is God's going to speak. Now, when God speaks, his word is not separate from who he is. It's, again, an extension of who he is. Again, this is a three-in-one God. God doesn't create pieces of himself. He is one in one being, but we get introduced these three different aspects of God. God the creator, the spirit of God, and God the speaker. And the question, if God's going to speak, we should see what he says, right? Um, the first recorded words of God come in verse 3. Then God said, let there be light. And there was light. Now, in the Hebrew, there's no quotes around that. Uh, and in fact, uh, the two phrases, let there be light and there, and there was light, are in the Hebrew exactly the same. The first three words, then God said, in the Hebrew are actually three words. Two of them are repeated. It is Amar Elohim Amar. Said God said. Uh, in the repetition of the word said, this is, this is interesting stuff, but you got to follow me on this. God simply authorizes. In the first verse, God creates the heavens and the earth. In verse 3, God is not creating anything. He's authorizing revelation. So let me go to Isaiah 55, 11, so, so this makes a lot of sense. So shall my word be that goes forth from my mouth. This does not mean that God's word is separate from God. It is God. It's the same thing. It shall not return to me void. When God speaks, it does not result in void. It comes back to him with the purpose for which he intended. So Isaiah 55, 11, So my word be that goes forth from my mouth, that it shall not return to me void, but shall accomplish what I please, and shall prosper in the thing for which I sent it. Not only does God's word go forth from him, it's going to do exactly what he intends, and it's going to come back to him. That sounds like our God, doesn't it? When God says something, it actually is existence. It is reality. So when God says that something's good or something's bad, it's actually good or bad. That's, that's the premise. It's not a discussion at that point because God's defined the laws of the universe that God created and he makes the laws of the universe he created. So when he says there is gravity, there is gravity. When he chooses to not have gravity, he cannot have gravity. It's God's universe. God's word is an extension of who God is. It is a dimension of God himself. Yet it seems to take on this force or this intention here. So all writers are going to establish definitions. We see that happen here too. This is the first mention of God's word. 
and the God's word is, let there be light, and there was light. So um, we, we see, to interpret that, in the Hebrew, it's haya or, haya or, just repeated. Now, this is really interesting. In the Hebrew, when you repeat something, say it twice, it makes it emphatic. So it, it adds emphasis to whatever you're doing. It also allows for the Hebrew to be read in different ways because in the Hebrew, we don't see without great intention in the writer, we don't see past, present, or future. We see timeless statements that are outside of that timelessness. This makes prophecy really interesting, by the way, later on. And when we get to the New Testament, the Bible switches to Greek because we want more specifics and things have been revealed. But in the Hebrew, it allows room for interpretation of things in the present tense, past tense, and future tense. So it's outside of time. So when we see haya or, haya or, that's outside of time. Note that in verse three, the word creation is not used. There's no creation going on here. God's just speaking. So he creates the heavens and he is responsible for creating the earth and he speaks, be light, be light. Let it all be seen. Let everyone see God. Haya means for something to come to pass, to have existed or it means something that's already existed. So Haya can be in the past, present, or future. It can be in the beginning, it can be in the middle or the end, Haya. It's like a verb without a tense. When it's used twice, we need to pick at least two tenses or add emphatics to it, which would be, it's all three. And God said, be light, be light. There is light before, there is light in the middle, there is light after, and light is something that reveals the sight of someone else. It is to be seen. It is as though I go down to the beach and I take my shirt off. It does not mean that I am separate from me with my shirt and me without my shirt. It is simply that I have revealed myself, which might not be pretty for everyone to look at. But it is a revelation, and I decide let my shirt be off, let my shirt be off, let there be light, let there be light. And it's measurable and it's physical and it's something that can be seen. So here we wonder and we have some ideas that there's something here that needs to be revealed. Let something be revealed. Light is both a spiritual light that's talked about throughout the Bible. We see light referred to in the spiritual sense. We also see it referred to in the physical sense. In the physical sense, light, light can be actually measured in a lab. It's fixed, it's constant, it has waves, different kinds of waves for different kinds of light. And those light, that light hits our eyeball and we can measure and we can exert pressure with light. It has force to it, a very, uh, very particular physical thing called light. The Bible seems to say, be light, be light, after saying heavens and earth, there's a spiritual light for us to see and there's a physical light for us to see. The word or in here, uh, haya or, haya or, the Hebrew word or is to denote existence or something that comes from a source. But we're not told the source other than the fact that the only thing that's here so far is God and the heavens and the earth. And God says, let there, let there be light. Let's make it so people can see things. That's an interesting thing that needs some commentary. As an unrevealed human, it's hard to make commentary on that. In fact, I think that the rabbis would have had real troubles with this passage. There are ways of seeing this that are difficult, but we're supposed to see things in new ways. 1 Corinthians 5.17 says, If any man be in Christ, he's a new creature. Old things are passed away, and all things are become new. 
we're supposed to see that there's a spiritual existence that God has created in which we can become new. That doesn't mean we get new physical bodies, but it does mean that there's something spiritual that's to be seen and to be revealed. God's light of the world is to shine out so people can see him and come into relationship with the spirit of God that hovers, a God that creates, a God that makes light happen. It's the first work of grace in a dark, directionless, formless world. God sees the light in verse 4 and says, that's good. I want people to see. God divides the light from the darkness. So we see God's character revealed now in verbs. First, God sees things. He saw the light. He judges. That was good. He divides things. God divided the light from the darkness. He makes order out of chaos. And then God defines things in the next verse. This is a God that takes action, that does things. This is separating God from a lot of polytheistic religions. It separates God from uh, from fluid or non-God religions like Buddhism, right? That there's a power in the universe that exists that we can resonate with or not. No, this is a God that actually takes action, has a plan, and presents his word to humanity so that we can read it in this Bible we hold. In the beginning was God. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. But I want to go back to John 1.1. He gives us commentary for which we can understand these first five verses. Here's his commentary. Listen really careful. First, he cues us off by saying, in the beginning, letting us know that he's talking about Genesis 1. Genesis 1.1. In the beginning was the Word. Well, it doesn't say in Genesis 1-5 through 5 that the Word is here, with a capital W, by the way, the Word as, as, the, uh, as a proper word, proper title. In the beginning was the Word. The only thing we see in the first three verses is that God speaks, and he says, let there be light. So John connects us and basically says that there's God the Creator, he says there is the Spirit of God hovering over the water, which he doesn't mention in the first verses of John, but he wants us to see the third thing, that there was something to be revealed at the beginning of time that is Jesus, that is the thing we should see in that light. Here's what John says in John 1.1. In the beginning was the Word, the Word was with God, the Word was God. Same thing, not a different being. He was in the beginning with God. So there's God the Creator, the Spirit of God, and God the He. God the thing we can see. God the, the Jesus we can meet and talk to. Verse 3 of John 1. All things were made through Him this he that John's introducing. And without him, nothing was made that was made. And in him was life, and the life was the light of men. And the light shines in the darkness, and the darkness doesn't comprehend it. Light is God's answer to darkness. When we can't see, God creates something that we, where we can see. Light is meant to bounce off of eyeballs. So God's light is there for us to see him. And it's not separate. The him is not separate from God. It is God. And we're supposed to see him. So for John, in John 1 through 4, he's talking about Jesus. That God's an actor that steps into our reality and intervenes into the formlessness, darkness, chaos, evil that's out there. And then there's Jesus. And Jesus steps in. And he wants us to see it. And God thinks that's a good thing. 
I'm going to call that good. That's going to be daytime. That's what we're here to do. So when we're formless, dark, clueless people, we don't see Jesus. We can't. We need the help of God, Holy Spirit, Jesus, the triune Elohim God, to help us to see him. We have to divide light from dark, just like God does. We have to recognize truth from lies, just like God does. We have to do it physically when we open our eyeballs and see things, and we have to do it spiritually when we open our spiritual eyes to see a good and a holy God. It's light versus dark, kids. That's what it's all about. We establish the theme of the Bible. In the New Testament, they go a step further and they say, wait, you are the darkness and you are the problem, but with God, you can become the light. You can become children of light, of God, children of God. Genesis 1 is what they're referencing when they say that. Ephesians 5, 6 through 13, be in the light because Jesus puts that light in you. The word of God comes into us by reading the word of God and we confess our sins and Jesus says, I'm going to die on a cross for those sins and then I'm going to put a new creation in you. And that new creation is going to spend eternity with God. Any other theology, any other belief system that humans have come up with is not God-inspired. And don't let anybody deceive you with empty words with other paths because there's such things as God's wrath and that comes on those who are disobedient to this basic truth. Ephesians 5, 7. Therefore, don't be partners with them. You were once darkness, but now you are light in the Lord. Live like children of light. For the fruit of the light consists in all goodness. Why? Because in Genesis 1, God called it good. Therefore, it is good. Righteousness, truth. Verse 10 in Ephesians, 6, in Ephesians 5. And find out what pleases the Lord. Have nothing to do with the fruitless deeds of darkness, but rather expose them. What do you expose darkness with? Light. Fruitless deeds of darkness because it's not a thing. It doesn't make anything, do anything, or think anything. It just blinds people. It's shameful to even mention what disobedient people do in secret, but everything exposed by the light becomes visible. And everything that's illuminated becomes a light. Why does that happen? Physically, that's actually true. When light shines on something and that something then reflects light or bounces light off, it actually becomes a source of light in a way. Like at some level, like hold up in a very, very dark room, hold up a, a flame and then hold up your hand about a foot away from it and you'll see that your hand is actually illuminating too. When we are exposed to the light, we become lights too. And this is part of the message of the New Testament but it's rooted here in the Old Testament. The author of the book is telling us why we should care about light and dark, good from bad, order from chaos. Why wouldn't we want to know about that? Why wouldn't we want to know the truth of our own reality? So the whys of the Bible, the beginnings, the versheath of the Bible is right here in Genesis. He divides light from darkness. If God divides and humans can be either, there has to be a plan or a purpose to allow us to be children of light. There's got to be something that can save us from all the darkness around us. It sets up an anticipation for a Messiah, a God that can show us the path, the way. The way, the truth, and the life are by Jesus Christ. Light and sound are both waves that happen at different frequencies. Anyone without somebody to perceive those frequencies, there's no purpose here. 
God has a plan and humanity's part of the plan and he's setting the stage for all of that in the beginning of Genesis. Verse five says, God called the light day, called the darkness night. Day and night there are proper names, like they're entities, like they're beings. So the, even in the evening and the morning were the first day, small d, just a chronological day. Biblically, that chronological day is 24 hours. Uh, this is one of those points of controversy because people say, well, the first day has been created and there isn't even a sun out because God doesn't create the sun until later. Well, let's talk about that for a second. First of all, the word day is yom in the Hebrew. Yom can mean a 24-hour day. It can mean a lifetime. It can mean a period of time. It can mean all of the days. Uh, it is the shape of something in which there is light, right? And in the Hebrew, it is were yom, and then it says first yom. This is the first thing. In the beginning, and then we have the first day. In the beginning, there is first. First things first is a way to kind of say that, right? So in evening and morning coming together, that's day, that's existence. That's what's there. It's not formless, void and, and worthless. It's not a formless void that is worthless. It is something that has shape and meaning. And, and there is light, there is darkness. There are two sides to the story. Um, no matter how dark things get, dark doesn't actually have any force. It is the lack of waves, the lack of doing anything. And that's the core of reality. There's reality and there's not reality, light and dark. We can live with form and purpose or we can choose not to. We can choose the things that are real, we can choose God, or we can choose the things that are unreal, our own imagination. Real versus false. Think about the effect then that Jesus has on all of human history because of these first five verses. Jesus, there from the beginning, because he's God, and Jesus is not a created being like the Mormons say it, he is God. He is there from the beginning. This then, 1 John 1, 5, is the message we've all heard from him and declare unto you that God is light. He is light. And in him is no darkness at all. He's the thing that illuminates. He's the being, the creation that we should see. Or, I'm sorry, he's not a creation. He is the creator that we should see. He is light from before all of creation is God. In the beginning, God. If we say we have fellowship with him and we walk in darkness, we then become liars and we're not telling the truth. If we walk in the light, like God's in the light, we have fellowship with one another. And the blood of Jesus Christ, his son, cleans us all from sin. This is the narrative, 1 John 1, 7, 1, 1 5 through 7. For a John 8, 12 says the same, same writer says it in a different way. Then spoke Jesus again to them saying, I'm the light of the world. He that follows me will not walk in darkness, but shall have the light of life. Jesus says, I'm the light of the world. So when God says, be light, be light, he's not creating light there. He's saying, I want things to be seen. I'm going to create an order in the universe and that I, as the God of the universe, will make a universe in which I can be seen. And Jesus says, I'm the light of the world. I'm the way that you see things. I'm the seeable God come in human form so you can have a physical example of God to follow. God wasn't created when he was a baby in a stable. He was there from the beginning. In the beginning was the word and the word was God. In the beginning. This idea of light, word, God, all coming together. 
gives us an image of a God that is both God the creator, God the spirit, God the thing to be seen in the light, a revealed God, all in the first few verses. Lord, may we die in peace because we've seen his salvation, that it's possible to see the salvation of Jesus Christ. And he's prepared it before the face of all peoples, Luke 2, 31. A light to bring revelation to the Gentiles and the glory of your people Israel. Two groups of people on the earth. There's Israel and there's Gentiles, everybody else. And there's a light that shows revelation to all of them. That's the beauty. Here's the other thing. We're called to be reflectors of the light. James 1.17. Every good and perfect gift is from above. That's where all good things come from. And cometh down from the Father of lights, with whom there is no variableness, neither shadow of turning. Of his own will, he begat us with the word of truth that we should be a kind of first fruits of his creatures. The very first thing in the Bible is God says, let there be light. Let the revelation of God be. Be light, be light. Let us all see him and know what he is. 2 Corinthians 4.4 4, In whom the God of the world has blinded the minds of them which believe not, lest the light of the glorious gospel of Christ, who is the image of God, should shine into them. We actually see God when we see Christ there before anything else. And that's John's point at the beginning of the Gospel of John. Jesus is God and he is the creator God. Together with the spirit of God, we have a three-in-one God that created everything. The creator. God's personal. Note the verbs that show us the nature of God. He creates things. He hovers. He speaks. He sees. He divides. He sorts. God calls. God speaks. He says. He's not a passive God. It's not some force or power in the universe. This is God Elohim. That's the gospel message. He made you. He hovers over you. He speaks to you. He sees you. He's going to judge you and he's calling you into the light. That's the gospel. And in response to the good news, oh yeah, and that light is Jesus Christ. That's the good news right there. He's calling you into his own. He wants you to see him. We have a really philosophical, theological altar call here in the first five years verses, but it's there. The question of Genesis 1 through 5 is, if there's a God and he created everything and he hovers over everything and he loves everything and he is revealed to us in the light, wow. The only question is at the end of your days, actually, why wait? You don't know your days. You don't know how long you're going to live. Are you calling, are you looking at the light or are you looking at the darkness? Do you walk in the light, what God calls good, or do you walk in the darkness, what God calls bad? Do you have fellowship with God today, or do you have more friends in the world that are walking away and not worried about God? Is there form and shape to your life, or is your life chaos and formless? Because that's not good. God didn't make that. He didn't want that. What he wants is a loving relationship with you that takes shape and form in the light of Jesus Christ. Let that light chase off the darkness. Why, what are you waiting for? So here's the thing. We're going to start the Bible. This is just Genesis, the first few verses of Genesis. Uh, next week we'll finish Genesis 1 and we'll get through the rest of the chapter. But I want to, I mean, as we dig in, as we start this off and we, we, we introduce ourselves to the study of God's word, we need to understand the plan from the beginning was God's revelation. 
It's the first thing he said, let there be light. I want people to see. And that thing he wants us to see is Jesus Christ. That was his first word, his word, capital W, out of his mouth. And Jesus became the light, and he wants us to be lights that reflect him to the world. It's all right there in the first few verses. What a beautiful thought. All of creation, then, is to bring light out of darkness. Amen? Let's pray. Dear Lord, I thank you for your word. It was there from the beginning. That we can read it and we can know it. Lord, the most difficult leap for us to make is to believe that you are a good and a holy God and that what, what these first five verses say is true. And from there, everything else in the Bible can resonate. But all we need to do is say, I believe there's a creator God that watches and hovers and that we can see him, that you have, you have made light so that we can see you in that light. And we want to see you, Lord. We just want to be closer to you. So we're going to read your word because you tell us to read it. And in doing that, we're going to be faithful to it. Lord, we don't have time left to be halfway Christians. We have to be all in. And Lord, we read your word and we read your Bible and we're looking for Jesus because we're looking for an all-in gospel. But Lord, we want to read it with all of our intellect, all of our reason, and all of the orderly thinking that you've blessed us with. We want to understand the critiques of the Bible and frankly, the nonsense that they bring so that we can defend our faith and we can stand on your word as perfect and holy. So Lord, if there's anything that we need to see, teach us, reveal it to us in your light. But Lord, let us do that based on what you say in your word, not based on what humans say that are lost and without hope. Lord, may we hear your word first. Lord, change us. Take your Holy Spirit and make us different. Make us a new creation. Help us to walk in the light so we can reflect the light. Help us to see Jesus. In Jesus' name, amen. If you found this teaching helpful, insightful, you can support this podcast by sharing it with a friend. Screenshot it, tag it, post it on your social media.